This week, I felt as though I'd won my very own golden ticket as I chatted to Mr. Willy Wonka himself, Angus Thurwell, founder of the brilliant and innovative Hotel Chocolat. I loved hearing his story brought to life from early childhood, growing up in Barbados as part of a very entrepreneurial family, to building a truly ethical business that's revived an entire plantation and its community in St. Lucia. As a self-confessed chocoholic, Angus's love of chocolate is as infectious as his understanding of what makes a brand special. The magic touches and the confidence and intuition you need as a founder when pushing and building your brand, not only for the customer today, but for all in the future. His letter to his younger self and the moment with his father and a prince well, it's actually these milestone moments that make the whole roller coaster of being an entrepreneur a privilege. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Angus. You will be glad to know... That before this interview, I asked the whole Holly & Co team if they were chocoholics as I was and every single hand went up. And then we had a sort of competition to think who has eaten the most of your chocolates in their lifetime. And actually, I luckily I wasn't the winner. So it's a pleasure to talk to the true life Mr. Chocolate. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Holly. And you're looking great on the amount of hotel chocolate you've eaten so far. It's, uh, skin's <laughs> glowing, eyes are bright. Absolutely. I think it's a secret recipe and really looking forward to hearing your story today because after researching you, my goodness, you know, this is only going to be an hour long, but I can imagine it could be 10 hours long with the amount that I want to talk to you about. You've had a really interesting childhood because you were the eldest of four children and spent some of your early years growing up in Barbados. Now that sounds pretty idyllic, quite adventurous. I imagine there was some freedom, air, sky, blue. What was it like? It was, in fact, really idyllic. We used to go swimming every day after school, and I went to a school which was a private school. There were black boys and girls and white boys and girls, and we had very inspirational teachers. We had Tarzan ropes to swing on uh, in between lessons. When I go back to the Caribbean now, Barbados or St. Lucia, where we have a business, when I stand on those steps and smell the Caribbean air, it evokes something really primeval in me. It, it just feels like coming home. Mm. And it's, it's what people have said about going to Africa, actually, that mm. I really want to go and, and explore. But it's that feeling of I really belong there. I know I do. It feels so warm, so vibrant. Uh, and I just can't wait to, you know, run down the steps and see all the team and get involved. I can imagine. You came from a very 
entrepreneurial family. And I couldn't believe this. Your father co-founded Mr. Whippy Ice Cream. So this is a pretty iconic business. And it was when your father sold that business that the whole family headed to Barbados so he could run another ice cream company. And you were there, as you said, for six years, returning to the UK at about age nine, where your father then started a printing company called Pronterprint, which absolutely I know. So he's a very busy man and you must have been really surrounded by this entrepreneurial spirit. Do you think that impacted you from a young age? And what was his sort of way around you? You know, was it entrepreneurial? Did he inspire you to think big? Yeah, I was really lucky to kind of feed off his energy and the way he talked about business was in an excited way. He wasn't going to work. He was going to have an adventure every day. And that clearly rubbed off. And he uh, was very absorbed in it. You could see he loved what he was doing. And it never felt like he was shuffling out of the house with his briefcase. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he used to bound around and, you know, I I just kind of imbued into me that I I would really like to be doing something like that. But um, also his achievements, and he's still building them. He's in his 80s now. And I was on the phone to him yesterday and he's building a solar powered ice cream factory in Barbados now. My goodness. And um, he's still working, still working every day and still exactly the same kind of energy and uh, approach to things. So a huge inspiration in my life for me. And I'm incredibly lucky to have that as a real building block. Isn't it amazing that you have a father in his 80s still building business? And, you know, I often talk about this word retirement and what a negative world that must assume that you're in, that you need to retire. Do you know what I mean? That that's the stage of your life where you get to live. You've got to have thoughts around that at the moment, you know, in terms of, do you look to your father and say, right, that's exactly how I'm going to be in life as I age? Yeah, I mean, I probably similar to you. I have no retirement um, yeah. plan at all. I, do, I, I can't get my head around the idea of it either. In terms of our development as humans, we just get better and better we should get better and better with more wisdom yeah wouldn't it be great if you could download everything you've learned on a chip and put it in the back of your child's head so that if they want to they can draw on all the stuff you've learned and selectively decide to build on it rather than have to make all the same mistakes again yes i've never heard that before absolutely why does everyone have to repeat the same mistakes it's actually so much more progress maybe we'd even compete with ai if we could actually do something like that certainly when you're starting off it just feels like some of the mistakes that I made certainly were so avoidable kind of schoolboy errors that I just wasted time and there's this sort of impatience to get them out of the way to start getting on with the real train set. When I speak with successful entrepreneurs, I do think that they are actually incredibly influenced by hardworking parents. Actually, that's the common denominator. It's been born through them watching the hard work and passion it takes to strive to get somewhere. Did your father share any words of wisdom with you? And what would you say that has gone on to shape in your life? Um, yes, I mean, I think the early, uh, my early thoughts about going into business were quite sort of desperate. And I, I, I think I felt a certain burden to come up with some magical idea that would I can imagine. be a world-beating invention. And I I can remember I came up with a, an idea that after you've had a bath, you could pull a sort of lever and then it would give you a shower with the same water. I was, you know, early teenager and I rushed to tell my dad and he said, look, if you chase money, you'll never get it. Mm-hmm. 
you find something you love doing and it, you know, stuff will happen and you'll end up building something of consequence, but don't grab at things. And it was a bit of a slap down, but it was got me out of that state of, I've got to find a silver bullet that's going to rock the world. I'm going to be a billionaire by the time I'm 19 or something. So I think building something meaningful up does take time and layers and layers of work and other people's work and building, yeah, this kind of something solid, something meaningful that's going to stay around for a while does take time. And I think that's one of the things I always try to tell younger people, don't rush at things, mm-hmm. just put on the layers and, and mm. accept the, the hard work. Yeah. And I read that he said that if you chase that money, it would never come and that you should find something that you love doing and then the money would look after itself. I do believe that. Absolutely. I mean, it takes a lot of um, balls because if you don't feel like you're chasing the money, what happens if it never does come? Absolutely. I think I was motivated very strongly by money when I sort of didn't have any. Mm. And I wanted to try and make a good life for my young family. And and there's a certain element of survivability. You've got to move to the next stage. And I know for sure I'm not motivated by money now because um, I, I have money and I still want to do things. I still have a visceral sense of urgency to carry on with projects and build things and I found that really exciting. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the adventure. This word I think is going to come up quite a bit in our conversation. I read when researching for this podcast that even as a teenager, your entrepreneurial spirit was alive and kicking and you found a gap in the market at boarding school for midnight snacks. Now, might you share this story with me? Because it's not the school tuck shop. I found this quite ingenious. Well, yeah, this is a boarding school in North Yorkshire. Very good rugby school, Barnard Castle School, now famous. Great eyewear as well. <laughs> used to get free bread and free butter, which was labelled from the EU Butter Mountain in those days. As a sixth former, I was in charge of a dormitory of about 20-odd kids. Free electricity, bread, butter, and free labour, as it turns out. So getting some of the boys to make a toast round and deliver at bedside and collect five or ten peas from everybody for each slice of toast was very lucrative. The best product margins I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine like winter nights, your orders must have gone through the roof. Well, not only that, but I mean, when you're lying in bed and it's freezing cold in Yorkshire and the smell of melting butter on toast wafts over. Yeah, you've got a captured audience there, haven't you? It's very powerful advertising. (laughs) I love that. Supply and demand. You then went on to study French and economics at university, but dropped out and spent two years in France selling components for computers. And I love this. Whilst you were in France, your boss said that your individualistic approach meant you were either destined to end up in prison or start your own business. And that really made me laugh. He had this sort of clear vision for you, didn't he? Um, well, it takes one to know one. Um, and and he, he was a very exciting person to work for, called Vincent. We used to argue a lot, even after a few months of arriving there. But I wouldn't swap that time for anything. And I used to be able to make him annoyed like nobody else could. But it was a great time. After returning to the UK, you continue working in the IT industry. And this is where you met with Peter Harris, who would go on to be your co-founder. 
And together, you decided to start your own business selling corporate mints, personalised mints with company logos. Now, as a woman with personalisation close to my heart, I'm in awe of this because you started this business in your front room, relatively small amount of money. It was pretty successful. You had contracts with BA and large hotels. But I read that you realised you hadn't created the customer relationship that you really were striving for because at Christmas you noticed that you weren't busier than you had been all the rest of the year. And I'm interested because I think for small businesses, it's such a valuable piece of advice to look at your business and see where the potential downfalls are and how you might diversify. And I think it takes a lot of guts to actually start criticising your own business. Will you tell me a little bit more about this diversification and the idea of how chocolate came into that picture? Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly niche idea and it was uh, never going to scale massively. It was really intended as a, kind of an opening gambit to give us momentum and get us going on something. Yeah. For a while, we were, you know, the mint guys, we were really, really passionate about it and wouldn't truck any other kind of business idea because we were, I think we fell under the spell of, of it. There's a balancing thing because if you chase every opportunity, you just dilute yourself. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you've got to be alive to progression and and some businesses need evolution. Ours is one. We need to keep evolving. Other businesses can have a patent or gap in the market and probably know that they will rise and they will fall in a certain business lifespan. But if you want to keep going for a very long time, then I think evolution is necessary. The turning point for us was business to business. It was mints only. And our customers had asked countless times, you must have something else. And this is even when we were pure B2B. And kind of we were dragged to chocolate unwillingly, because it was the next thing we had to look at. And as an adjacent product category, once uh, I started investigating chocolate, I just realized that it had the power to excite people, you know, in a way that mints never could, you know, literally the lights go on, the pulse quickens. And, you know, we had something potentially very powerful that we could create around. And that then put us on a different trajectory. What is it that you think that chocolate has? So you were the mint guys, you know, but suddenly you knew chocolate was winning hands down here. What is it just at its core that you think people are so in love with chocolate for? I think when you go down and down and down into what it is, I've come up with escapism. Okay. Chocolate has the power to give you a special space around yourself, special feeling of drawing away from the humdrum of what's going on and just you and your chocolate and what it does to your mind, what it does to your taste buds. It's permission to to escape So you must have thought about that long and hard to know that you take that bite and all you're doing is concentrating on that experience, actually, the feeling of treating yourself that you're sort of pulled into the moment. And I never thought of that, but you're completely right. Maybe why people eat bars of the stuff to just continue that feeling of of escapism. I live with a chocoholic as well. You know, this is one of these issues that goes on. You know, there's this huge conversation about where's the chocolate in the house every single night. It does get a bit addictive, doesn't it? That feeling. Well, yeah, my wife goes mad with me if there's not enough chocolate around. She says, what's the point in being married to a chocolate maker and putting up with all this shit when there's not even chocolate in the house? 
And I bet you're the sort of person that won't go and drive down to the garage and get some shitty chocolate. I'll make it. I have to make it, yeah. Oh, you'll have to make it. It's like, I just, quick chocolate fix. When you think about the model that you had, it was so ahead of your time because the company in the end was called Choc Express. And you were sending chocolates by post with a personalised message, almost unheard of in 1993. And a few years later, you were one of the UK's earliest ever online retailers. I mean, I can only imagine, by the way, the pain of that. Choc Express was pretty successful, but in 2003, you'd become Hotel Chocolat and you opened your first physical space. How did you come up with that name? And... Why was it important to have a physical shop? Now, I know we're going back a few years, so that was a more obvious thing to do. But was that really important to have that physical destination? Yeah, I mean, the name, going back to escapism, we had a very functional name, Choc Express. It it was fast delivered chocolates. Perfect when the biggest problem is telling people what your service actually is. And you just want a name that, you know, it does what it says on the tin. But the thing we're purveying is the legal version of crack cocaine, potentially. It's escapist, it's sensual, and a name like Choc Express, you know, really undersells it. Yeah. I knew we had to have a better name to take us where we now knew we could go. Our ambition had increased and increased, and we thought, right, we can see this can be a really exciting business, but why do my friends keep saying to me, I tried some of your chocolate and it was surprisingly nice? We were really underplaying what we had. Yeah. The first part of the brand name had to be Chocolat. I'd lived in France for a couple of years. I'd heard French people, particularly French women, say Chocolat. Mm. And it just lodged in my memory forever. That's how you say it. That is the definitive (laughs) way to say Chocolat. Yes, It's really onomatopoeic for the melt. Yes. Whereas Chocolat, this Anglo-Saxon version, is the snap. Yes. And nobody's interested in the snap. What they want is the melt. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You are so good. This is so beautiful to hear. So something Chocolat. And then I was looking for words and had a massive spreadsheet going with all the words that were remotely interesting. And I, then I came across Hotel and thought, right, that could be it. It's escapist. Mm. Things happen in hotels. It's sense of going to be somebody different you know you can Mm. you know all the mystery that goes on in hotels and it's welcoming all those things so putting the two together became brand and when we realized we had a good brand name and we had a good position in in terms of our products a good recipe philosophy the real test was can we open a space and invite people to come into it and give them a taste of our latest recipes and tell them about what we're doing face-to-face, given the nature of our product range, i.e. very sensorial, very kind of immediate gratification-based. For our model, a physical space can add something that online can never do. Mm. So we started designing it and we picked Watford because it was a slice of just the average UK. And if it worked there, it could also work in other places. We wanted to come up with something that would be, you know, repeatable. And one of the best moments was seeing the shutters go up in the Harlequin Centre in Watford and watching people just drift in and seeing the fascia. I had pre-performance nerves the day before thinking, oh my God, people are going to just laugh at it, think it's a real hotel and (laughs) ask for a room or something. And (laughs) 
or be put off because it was black and white and, you know, chocolate wasn't really black and white. Chocolate was all gold and yep. heritage stuff. And we'd made it look extremely contemporary. But um, seeing a group of old ladies go in and then, you know, some school children and then a, a couple of men, we just thought, right, yes, it, it does seem that the kind of position isn't an obstacle and people are freely going about investigating us. So it's going to work. NatWest's support for small businesses goes way beyond simply finance and day-to-day banking. Through their online business hub, you can find all kinds of useful information on how to kickstart and grow your business, from strategy and planning to sales and marketing. And it's all free. Head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker, where you'll also be able to view my exclusive video sharing top tips for small businesses and sign up for free email business updates. Now, as you know, every week we run a competition with NatWest who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hello, this is Mike from Nutsessity HQ in Somerset. Back in 2016, I started my nut butter company out of my peanut allergy. And to date, we've sold just over 60,000 jars of our nut butter, which at one point would have been unbelievable. We're now on this mission to become the UK's finest and most trusted nut butter brand. We've won three great taste awards to date. We're working with just over 250 independent shops and delis, including Planet Organic and Fennec. All our products are just made with nuts, seeds, coconut, whole fruit and salt. They're available in flavours like gingerbread almond, date and walnut, etc. If you fancy trying some, just head to nutsessity.co.uk and enter the code HOLLYCO, so H-O-L-L-Y-C-O, at the checkout. Cheers for your ears. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Just generally, in terms of retail and what you believe, having those physical spaces, do you think it's there to stay with us long term? Totally, for our business. We know that our physical Hutter Chocolats are the most prolific way to bring new customers into our brand, to discover us and to have the least friction in terms of buying and interacting with us. There's no delivery, there's no interface. I mean, I love online, don't get me wrong, but if you're on a street and you can see Hutter Chocolat across the road and you want to go there, all you have to do is cross the road and walk straight in. Mm. And our team will immediately greet you. You'll be offered a taste of the recipes you're working on. You can be literally eating chocolate within two minutes. And do you think that in terms of the people next to your physical shop, what will they be in the future? Because you almost have tapped into an experiential shop from day one. What do you think the rest of the high street's going to do? Because, you know, it does matter, doesn't it? Who's next to you on the high street, what that community is. What do you think is going to happen to your neighbours? One of the interesting things that's happened over COVID is that 
the kind of residential areas, you know, places like Leamington Spa and Truro and Harrogate, there's more people around than ever before mm. walking, working a bit from home, discovering their locality. So actually, the clock has been turned back, or I suppose the direction of travel has been shifted for those type of communities. So there are some interesting dynamics at play. And I think if you've got something that is either unique, which could be a new startup local business with an interesting proposition, or has an experiential dimension, which could be great drinks, could be a great wine shop or, you know, cheese or any anything in food, frankly, mm-hmm. fashion where you're doing very precise sizes or bespoke things for the home. So many different ways to make it more than can be offered online with a few clicks. Right. And the thing we really like is that physical plus online is one plus one equals five. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. If you can ask your customers to be in touch with you through multiple channels, you end up having a closer relationship than if it's on purely one channel. And the proviso is that you're offering something different in those channels and thereby developing a kind of more rounded perception of your brand and a consequently deeper relationship. I think there's huge opportunities and the reform that's happening with the cost of running property in the UK is going to usher in a whole load of new innovation, new startups, hopefully new dynamism. And I really do believe in British flair, British creativity, and particularly the young people I talk to, there's a lot of daring to going on and people want to get started. I couldn't agree with you more. It's going to be very exciting, isn't it, to watch what happens over just the next five years. Just It's going to be fantastic. I spoke to Joe Fairley, founder of Green and Blacks, and for this podcast, and we spoke about how she was told the British would never eat dark chocolate. And I know that you were also thinking differently at that time from the start because you invented something called the Tasting Club, which, by the way, I just think it was genius. What was the idea behind this and how did it go on to impact the business? Because I think that everyone listening will pick up on actually how clever it was to engage with your customer and get them doing so much of the hard work for you. The idea came about because we had the delivered gift business and the positives there are that you, you know, you get people repeating their behavior like, you know, I might send you a birthday present and the next year I got a good response and I'll send you the same thing again. But a a year is a long time to wait for another order. Mm. This model was difficult to work economically. And so what can we do to have another dimension in the relationship where we're in more regular contact? And one of the things I'd noticed was when I was coming up with new chocolate recipes and getting like an assessment from the office of what people thought, I would take them around and ask people to take a chocolate, taste it and write a score out of 10 on a bit of paper, fold it up and put it in a tin. And then I would rank the chocolates that had been tasted by scores and share it. And everybody was really fascinated to know the results. And I just thought, wow, this is, you know, even the accounts team get excited over this. This is, <laughs> this is magic. Um, and sooner or later, it, it kind of trickled into being an idea that we could regularly send our, you know, like a membership, a tasting box, which would always be the same price or the same size. And we would ask for feedback and scores. And that would then give us amazing qualitative and quantitative feedback that would enable us to build a picture of what Brits wanted from their chocolate. 
And what we found is that things that have been written off as minorities, like, I don't know, marzipan, nobody likes marzipan anymore. What we found out is that people do like marzipan, they just don't like imitation marzipan, which is the stuff that's around a cheap Battenberg cake that's sort of like bright yellow, ah, yes. 90% sugar, a little bit of almond essence and a whole lot of yellow colouring. That's not marzipan. Marzipan is actually 60% plus almonds ground up with a, a little bit of sugar. And the difference is you know, illuminating for many people. And I used to get all sorts of letters and that was just one of the genre. But we went through all the different genre we could think of, had this amazing massive information that then meant that our product development was driven by real live data from our extended product research team. The chocolates were slightly preferentially priced on the basis of loyalty and participation in this kind of scoring. But really, nobody is interested to do that if the chocolates aren't good. Yeah. It's really about giving yourself permission to eat some delicious chocolate. I'm not eating chocolate. I'm doing research, dear. <laughs> it's so clever. And I think that actually that would have sparked a lot of light bulbs, just that thought. You know, I do try and talk about the obsession that we should have with our customers. Everything that we want to happen in the future will be based on what they want. You're nodding your head. I know you've had these wonderful conversations and suddenly no one's talking about the customer at all. And yet, actually, the full circle comes back to... The only thing we really should be look, listening to is what they want. Totally. There's also the data and what the data says, but that's only part of the picture because the, the data is chronicling historic behaviour. Mm. It's a guide to what might happen next. But if you're intent on making the business ever more relevant, ever more exciting and evolving, then if you repeat what you've done historically, you'll never evolve. So I love looking at data, but I, I think it's a complementary bit of insight to go with instinct, what customers are saying to you, what you're observing real customers doing in, in micro data as well as macro data. And that's, I think, why it's all fuzzy logic. It's all kind of in a amorphous mass whirring around and, and making sense of that is uh, is what entrepreneurs do and they take risks based on their opinions that they forge out of that sometimes conflicting data. As long as you know what the information is and you have it in front of you, not having the information, I think is, as you said, it's not having the full picture. But as long as you have all the information, it's okay to go against what the data says. If you truly believe in something, as you said, you know, the instinct of an entrepreneur, you know, what you've done with your business, it was not going to be based on what the computer, whether it said yes or no. I think that's it. And I mean, we're always looking in the rear view mirror, wondering who's going to compete with us, who's going to copy our ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about doing hard things is you've just made it harder for other people to copy you. And if it's really easy, sometimes it's only going to be a short-lived thing. It's not going to actually add a lot of value to you or your organisation. That's the comfort, isn't it? The sugar-coated <laughs> pill I keep selling to our team. It's good that it's difficult. Rejoice in that absolute late night. Come on. It's made it more difficult for us to have our tails chased. And of course, you weren't just changing chocolate as we knew it. You were also on a mission to make chocolate exciting again. As much as the sort of innovation, I suppose, I know that the 
commitment to quality was a huge focus for you because you felt as though you were, tell me about this, losing the heritage of chocolate that we had in this country. And that when you were looking at this, it led to something quite remarkable. And I would love to hear, I'd be honoured to hear actually the first-hand story of how it came to be that Hotel Chocolat bought the oldest coca plantation in St Lucia. Yes, well, a customer made it happen, really. One of the members of the Chocolate Tasting Club, a lovely lady called Michelle Clare, sent me an old book from 100 years ago. I got it my regular post and I was on the way to go and see my dad in Barbados. And I took this book in my case and, and opened it up when I was sitting under a tree in his garden. And I started to read it and it was a classic overwhelming serendipity moment. I was in the Caribbean. This book was about chocolate businesses. I was a chocolate business. A hundred years ago, though, it was about chocolate brands in England having an intimate and committed connection with agriculture Mm. and farming and how the things were interlinked. And what really struck me was that a hundred years later, British chocolate was really dominated by multinationals who had lost all linkages to agriculture. It was mm-hmm. sort of behind the kind of curtain of shame, if you like, of, oh, yeah, you know, it happens in Africa and it's subsistence lifestyle. But, ooh, look at all this great marketing. Mm. It just seemed like we'd gone backwards over 100 years. And the, the companies that were most uh, front of mind in, in the British chocolate scene were former Quaker businesses with amazing values. I mean, the best values ever. And all those had been diluted, diluted, diluted. Yep. And it was just literally a shell of a values-based business. And it felt like there was a job to be done. So um, I went back to Royston in Hertfordshire, <laughs> where our head office is. <laughs> I thought you were about to say I walked down the beach and I, a lot less glamorous. Well, exactly. I, well, I had the small task of trying to get my business partner, Peter Harris, who's a, a great guy, very adventurous as well, but a chartered accountant. You had to persuade the money man. He's supposed to be the sensible one. Well, yeah. And um, to give him his due, didn't completely faint or go off and warn. He just said, OK, I can see the angle. I mean, why don't you just start investigating? But please don't find one too soon. Anyway, of course, I stumbled across this amazing one in St. Lucia. And literally a few weeks later, we were both in wellies walking around um, the Rabo Estate, a beautiful old cacao farm. And it was available to buy. And it was Peter who kind of broke first and grabbed my arm and said, Angus, we've just got to buy this place right now. It's amazing. And I thought, wow, if it's had that effect on someone like Peter, yes. who's difficult to get excited, what effects is it going to have on a normal person? Gosh. And actually, I've been researching and looking at the estate and my goodness, the photographs are jaw-dropping and it's 140 acres of it. At the time, the trade of cacao farming was basically dying in St Lucia and you were able ultimately to revive that, putting in place an ethical program which meant that the farmers were being paid a higher price for the harvest and could then reinvest in the land. And that must have been incredible. And it was so incredible that actually you had Prince Charles come to visit. What was that moment like? There you were reading a book under your dad's tree and only X amount of time later, you had Prince Charles walking around your 140-acre estate. Well, yeah, I mean, by 
becoming farmers ourselves, we learned um, in the most real way possible how difficult it was to grow something, um, a crop that is tricky like cacao and keep the quality and find buyers and, and make a profit. And so the moment we got to a stable stage with our own operation, which admittedly was, you know, about three years, we had literally knew nothing. Steep learning curve, I can imagine. It was very exciting, a lot of fun, but a lot to learn. And we wanted to bring in the other farmers on the island to share in the kind of prosperity that we could create by selling the cacao to Hota Chocola, who would then position it appropriately in the market as being a really premium proposition. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we could afford to pay a lot more for the cacao. And we started this program going. And by the time we met Prince Charles, we were able to describe the program to him. And, you know, it was great knowing that you were talking to somebody else who was also trying to do the same thing. I mean, he's he's got the most amazing programs, the you know, the Prince's Trust, um, what he's trying to do with sustainable agriculture or has achieved already with that. And was able to recount a story of the former British Guyana where he had tried to do something and was just open and honest enough to say he couldn't make it work. Mm. But he had other programmes which had worked. And so he knew what we were going yeah, through, trying to knit, so knit this together. Yeah. And it was great. It wasn't just a question of talking to a kind of dignitary. I was talking to a, a human, a man who wanted to do something good and related to our own trials and tribulations. Do you have any advice for anyone thinking of starting a business, maybe they have one, in the confectionery industry, or even those just starting out in industry that they're passionate in? What would you say to them, advice that you might pass on, mistakes that they could maybe avoid? I think one of the mistakes I've seen people make is to immediately start doing the easy things in a business, investing in beautiful office chair or, you know, a, a higher spec printer or um, virtually anything apart from getting in the ring with the people that really matter, which your customers and trying to get them to support what you're doing. And putting off that day is a bad thing. You've got to make that the centre of all your objectives and everything else is secondary. If you're sitting on a milk crate doing emails, it doesn't matter. Just get in the ring and find out sooner or later, sooner better, is your business viable right now or do you need to adapt it to make it work better before you start doing the easy things of deflecting, spending money on other things, mm -hmm. recruiting people, putting off the moment of truth. I just knew you were about to say that. The thing we don't want to hear. It's just the thing, the really difficult bit. All the rest of it you can do, can't you? Yeah. But it's that difficult conversation, isn't it? Having it with yourself. Do you still approve all the chocolate in your business? I'm involved in all the chocolate in the business and I run a tasting panel which operates in a democratic way. So there's about six or eight of us. We have a green card and a red card. We taste the chocolate before discussion and then we at the same time show the cards if we get all greens it's a winner it's going to go yeah if we get all reds similarly it's not going to happen yeah if they're mixed we then start the discussion i've got experience i'm quite persuasive so i try to avoid leading the jury too much mm -hmm. but i've got a very firm idea of what the brand stands for and what is not hota chocolat and you know that could be i don't know novelty or it could be something that's too sweet or something that duplicates something we've already got. I definitely want to keep my hand on mm -hmm. on that green or red card. It's one of the best bits of my role, not just the eating the chocolate bit, but 
the creative discussion and seeing what everybody's got. I mean, we're a multidisciplinary team. We've got copywriters, we've got product marketers, got scientists, classically trained chocolatier. They've all got a great opinion and working in that tight group is fascinating. It's a great buzz. Ultimately, as a founder, keeping your eye on this It's very difficult to describe, isn't it? You couldn't put it into an Excel spreadsheet, could you? It's the magic, I think, that we can provide. Yes, and it's, I mean, the stereotype is that, you know, people are obsessed about product, never want to kill products. Mm. But they do because they realise that if you retire some products, it leaves space for the next great ideas. It's really painful having said that, and there's substantial angst involved in making those decisions. But that kind of personal feeling, that emotional investment that's been made in getting those products out of the ground, it makes business personal. It's always spiritual sometimes. It's so in our DNA. I wanted to talk to you about the actual hotel of Hotel Chocolat. You first opened up this absolute oasis in 2011 and surely the pinnacle of any chocolate nerd's dream because it was built to blend not only beautifully with the surroundings of your cacao farm in St. Lucia, but every detail was infused with the elements of the plantation from the food and the restaurants to the spa, which uses some of your homegrown pods in its treatments. And I'm just fascinated by this concept because not only is it any brand's dream, but it must have been an incredible experience, not only creating it, but for those who joined you and were your guests. And I get obsessed when I talk about the sort of depths of a brand, you know, the multidisciplined way that you can experience something and why I love doing this podcast as much as I love writing on Instagram or doing an event or writing a book. Tell me, was that a dream come true? When we bought the cacao farm. It wasn't on the agenda to build a hotel for sure. And we were just focused on trying not to, uh, you know, fail as farmers on the other side of the planet with no previous experience in agriculture. And um, Peter and I used to go and we really loved that place, walking through the groves and you know, it's it's got this amazing seascape with twin mountains that are half in the sea and half on land. And after a while we started talking about just having a few rooms that people could come and stay and share what we're feeling. Mm. And then the plan grew and grew and we thought, well, we need to have a restaurant of some type. Oh, then we're going to need a bar, clearly. And we built it and had a very talented Mancunian engineer there who was just priceless on this project and made it happen and, you know, gradually built a whole ecosystem in Seleucia of very talented stonemasons, carpenters, graphic artists, and made this thing rise out of the ground. But it was a real acid test of the brand, as you're saying, Holly, to be able to invite people who are interested in Hoda Chocolat or like Hoda Chocolat to come and stay with us, sleep overnight and wake up in the morning and they're still with us and have breakfast (laughs) and they're still with us, go for walks in the cacao and not get bored and discover all the different layers of what goes on to try and make some of the world's best chocolate. I've seen a lot of pictures and yes, travelling and dreaming at the moment is at our forefront of our minds, isn't it? And actually that leads me on to the period of time that we are experiencing because I can imagine that COVID has absolutely hit your business that, you know, the shop's closing before Easter. I can imagine Easter is one of your largest trading periods. What has this time been like? And 
I've never been failed to be inspired by how businesses have been able to cope with this. Each founder I speak to, there is a determination. I'm just interested in how it's been for Hotel Chocolat. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the, I suppose, the downside of the whole thing. I mean, there's nothing sadder than a physical space that is intended to be um, welcoming, warming, energetic, mm. with uh, no people in it, and particularly kind of sad with our hotel and our restaurant in Borough Market. Mm. The ovens have gone cold. All the water's been turned off. It's literally just a building. It's not a branded space anymore. It's not a place of excitement and dreams and mm. careers and good times. It's literally just an empty box. And that makes you really sad. Mm. You know, the teams have to go and sit at home and it's mentally distressing for motivated people to have to go through that. So my heart goes out to particularly people in the hospitality sector. That's the stuff of nightmares. On the positive side, as a brand, we have reacted ethically and um, in, a, in a family sense and competitively. We've really found a determination and energy that has made me very, very proud of everybody in Hotel Chocolat. When we were faced with that big problem of Easter's coming down the line two weeks away and all the Easter eggs and the bunnies are in 125 locations scattered across the UK. What are you going to do now? Mm. We made a plan. Our team opened up the stock rooms. We sent a fleet of our vehicles. We picked all the chocolate up. We got it back to the centre. Our customer base responded and ordered online. And we saved our Easter, we saved our bacon, and we also made a lot of families happy who wanted to have a Huda Chocolat Easter egg and they got one. Mm. It wasn't perfect, but it was snatching a chocolate bunny from the jaws of doom, basically. And that kind of momentum and the ability that we found to make fast decisions work as a very effective team has carried us all the way to now and we found extra gears. So we have become a much stronger digital player. Our online sales are exponentially up. We've reorganized our future investment plan. We've kept opening locations in Japan all the way through the pandemic. You know, we've made more ambitious plans during this enforced period than we would have made if it had never happened. So out of adversity, we've taken the option of stepping up to it and leaning into it rather than hiding under a rock until it's all over. And that's the type of organisation that I want Her to Chocolat to be and it makes me incredibly proud. All year, together with our friends at Three, we're working to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will happen. Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. Kate Spade's story began in Kansas, where she attended an all-girls Catholic school. It was whilst at college that she met Andy Spade, who would go on to become her husband and business partner. 
In the mid-80s, the couple headed to Manhattan and Kate began work in the accessories department of a glossy magazine. Before too long, she noticed a gap in the market for stylish and affordable bags, a bag she would like to carry herself, and with a dream of creating her own fashion line, she did just that. Making prototypes from sellotape and paper, the couple found a local manufacturer to produce the bags. Andy helped to fund the startup with money from his pension pot, and before too long, the couple's apartment started to fill up with boxes of handbags. They were an instant hit with customers, and the company flourished. An immensely talented designer, she was passionate about her brand and her unique ability to balance aesthetics and function ultimately ensured the kind of commercial and critical success that most fashion designers only dream of. Kate has inspired many designers to follow their dreams and her legacy leaves an indelible mark on the world of fashion. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag HollyandCoDreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. Do you think there's a, an ounce of truth in this that potentially you had a moment to sort of stop I know for myself, for instance, I'm even more ambitious, I suppose, actually in this time. I feel like we've all worked incredibly hard. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> it's been, hasn't it, the, the, the hardest work, actually. But I also think that there is a moment that a lot of entrepreneurs and founders have just re-engaged with themselves a bit. And potentially that was a beautiful thing for the business coming out of this, you know, for its future. It goes to the very core of your purpose. Why Soto Chocolate around? What does it do? Is it just a box of chocolates? And answering that and saying, well, at a superficial level, it might be sometimes, but what we do is we make people happy. Mm -hmm. And happiness is essential in human existence. We bring a bit of joy. We connect families at a distance when they can't see each other. Just look at all those messages that people are sending each other. We're making that happen. And we have a purpose. We're not as essential as a loaf of bread or, you know, some vegetables, but make no doubt we have a purpose. And we found that purpose stronger than ever. And we delivered on it. And that then has made us clearer thinking about where we're going next and how do we get there in the best possible way. And where are you going next? What are your dreams? Are you allowed to say or are they top secret? No, I mean, we're intent on bringing Hota Chocolat into Japan and America. We're making great progress there. And that's our big challenge really for the next decade. Our an amazing adventure is probably chapter one's over of can we make it work? Does the brand fly there? Do customers get us? And we can unequivocally say the answer is yes. Now it's about making the smartest plan to grow and develop carefully, but with real intent. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing that. So that's probably the biggest goal for the whole business ahead. It's not easy what you're saying to do there. International expansion is just, um, it's, it's so fascinating um, and so difficult. And um, yeah, it sounds like you're cracking it, which is just phenomenal. Um 
I could talk to you all day and certainly about this subject and you've been so gracious with your time. I end all of our interviews with the analogy that running your business is like a roller coaster. And I can imagine yours would almost be shaped as a chocolate box, you know, going up and down and certainly your wife would be there and she'd have all the chocolates that she needed. But tell me about what you would say has been your lowest low in your chocolate box. Normally can't answer this because for me, things that could be considered mistakes or setbacks are all part of the great sweep of getting to where we want to get to and accepting that it will never be perfectly executed. We're always taking 10 steps forward and two and a half back. Mm -hmm. And the two and a half that you take back, some of them help you get some sharper insights. And some of the other step backs are temporary. They are ideas or concepts that have to go on the subs bench for a while and you will you know call on them later so if you're thinking about a very long business career so I keep going as long as my dad I've got another 30 years I'll definitely be calling on some of those ideas from the subs bench yes so normally I find that very difficult to answer but the lowest low is just those eerily quiet locations during the COVID era where everything was cold and you just realize that Without a brand, without purpose, without people, without chocolate, you know, a branded box is just four walls. Very profound. Um, and your high, the winds in your hair, sun on your face. It seems like you've got a permanent suntan there. Is that because of all your trips? You you look very well. Thank you. It's, it, well, it's all the um, the pure cacao that I eat. It yes. uh, keeps me fe- feeling good. No, it, I mean, I like to uh, be outside in the fresh air a lot. But I think the highest high that I can put a, a finger on um, recently is Japan, our first opening in the largest shopping mall in Japan has seven kilometres of shops. Oh, my goodness. We were opening. Nobody in Japan had ever heard of us. And Chris and, and Hiro, our leaders in Japan, were with me. And the opening happened. The ribbon was cut. And there was an immediate queue. <gasps> Their excitement was feverish. I've never seen anything like it. It beat Watford hands down. And (laughs) seeing that and just thinking back to this concept of what is a brand and how do you bind people together and create something out of nothing, it is quite profound, but it's also quite humbling when you realise all the individual efforts and the team efforts that have gone into opening on the other side of the planet with uh, all the different customs and everything that you have to overcome to make that e- even the opening happen on time yes. with actual stock there. And anyway, it was a real highlight. I was so privileged to be able to see it. A memory forever. That's in your memory box, isn't it? Forever. It's been a real privilege. I was saying to you before we started recording, your face um, has been on my wall for a long time. And actually, you're a real business hero of mine. The way you've diversified your business in terms of the hotel to the way that you look at your marketing, everything, absolutely everything has just been a joy to watch as a business owner and certainly you've inspired me more than you'll ever know. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. Holly. I just want to say that I've been looking forward to meeting you for a long time and I was hoping we'd bump into each other at an event or something. But um, no, I mean, I'm immensely impressed with what you've done on Not in the High Street. Genius idea and superbly executed and all the other projects you've got on going on as well. 
Thank you. That's so kind of you to say. My goodness, I can't believe you said that. Um, I feel honoured. Um, I'm going to hand over to you now. You've beautifully written a letter to your younger self. I don't know what it's going to say. Um, it's a moment that um, I sort of take my glasses off and sit back and listen. But I just wanted to thank you on behalf of everyone listening and myself. Thank you, Holly. Real pleasure. Okay, so um, here we go. Dear Angus, you're probably opening this letter thinking, okay, tell me the worst. How did I mess things up? You always had a slug of underlying angst under a cloak of bravado and optimism. But relax, I'm going to tell you how things turned out. Up to your 50s anyway. But pay attention because there are some themes and behaviours that you have to grasp. And both of us know that you can be easily led astray at your age anyway. Don't blow it with Libby, your girlfriend. She will turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Keeping your relationship growing while you live in France for two years and Libby in London will be the foundation stone for the rest of your life. The free weekend flights that your dad negotiated for you from the company you're working for will be worth a million times more than the mere monetary value. Libby will be the breadwinner while you fumble around with your early business ideas. She will nurture and develop two beautiful children with less input from you than she deserves and will still have time to be your confidant and key advisor as you try to build your future business. She will keep believing in you and tolerating your shortcomings more than 30 years later, but don't ever take it for granted. Do try harder not to take business problems home. Listen to your instincts and don't allow yourself to be talked out of things or to overthink. It will turn out that using instincts and believing and keeping going will work for you. Changing direction when needed is also instinct, even if it overwrites the previous one. Something could have changed or you may have interpreted things incorrectly. But you will need good people with you and not just in your marriage. Loyalty both ways and trust will mean some surprisingly good people end up working with you for a very long time including your business partner, Peter. The joy of succeeding with a great team will be a source of real pleasure for you. Always remember to aim high and get the best people you can. You will get better at luring truly impressive people into working with you as you go on. Your father always drummed into you that he wanted you to be the sort of man who could talk to princes and paupers equally with respect and humility. A special moment is coming up for you when you will see your father lead the introduction line for the Prince of Wales as he visits your cacao farm on a state visit to St Lucia. On that day, farmers and workers mingled with princes and ministers, and nobody will smile that day as much as your old dad. Although it's still raw with you, being rejected by Oxford University will help you build grit and determination. Not everybody there is as smug or condescending as the two who interviewed you. After all, going to Sheffield University meant that you met Libby and everything good then will start to happen for you. Yours, Angus. <laughs> what a moment that must have been with your dad and the prince and the farmers and everyone that you had built there. That must have just been one of the most joyous moments of your life. I can feel it in your words. It was really surreal, yes, and a, a really fabulous convergence of things made it happen beautiful thank you so much tears in my eyes but thank you so much for sharing such a beautiful beautiful letter with us today angus thank you again thank you holly really enjoyed it 
go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder. Packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Thank you.